According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Once again, we're in Proverbs 16. Join me there, Proverbs 16, looking at verses 20 through 24. Proverbs 16, verses 20 through 24. He who gives attention to the word will find good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. The wise in heart will be called understanding, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Understanding is a fountain of life to one who has it, but the discipline of fools is folly. The heart of the wise instructs his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. All right, before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Ask our Father for His faithfulness in our ministry, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word and the blessing we have to assemble together. Father, we thank You that You are the God of truth and that Your Spirit is the Spirit of truth and that we walk in the truth. Father, I thank You that uh, truth is what it is, Father, and we're not adrift as so much of our culture is. And those that are without you, Father, uh, living in a world that denies absolutes and denies truth itself, Father, that is such a, a lost existence. I thank you for stability that comes by being rooted and grounded in the faith. I thank you for brothers and sisters that are dedicated to uh, to studying to show themselves approved as workmen, needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So we're here this morning. Feed us, bless us, equip us. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so uh, these verses uh, form really point six in our outline as we've been looking at it. Don't do that. Let's do that. There we go. The faith rests lie focused on the word of God. That's what all of us should strive for. The faith rests life focused on the Word of God. It is a persuasive life of communicated blessings. And uh, starting today, as we get into verses 21 and 23, and verses 22 and 24, those are the the tandems, the pairings, if you will, of the poetry of this section, we're going to see what that persuasive life is. And we're going to see how we persuade and how we communicate blessings and all of not just the happiness that we have but the true blessings that we communicate as we speak truth to those who need the truth. So uh, again the heading of this section is verse 20, he who gives attention to the word will find good. Of all the things that we discover, of all the things that we uh, uncover and that we enter into and every place that God takes us Um, the good comes always from being in the Word of God. We never are harmed by being in the Word of God. We never study to show ourselves approved and then encounter uh, problems because we just, by golly, we just spent too much time in doctrine. That doesn't happen, all right? We find good. Now God will arrange our circumstances, as it says in Job, and as Job had to communicate to Mrs. Job when she lost track of that, we receive good and we receive adversity, and God in His sovereignty will, will assign those times of testing for our growth, for His glory, for His good pleasure. But that adversity does not come from the Word of God that we're searching out, 
We understand that. The adversity comes from the world, from the flesh, from the devil, from testing circumstances, from angelic conflict, from being fallen creatures in a fallen world. Uh, We do encounter adversity or evil or or times of, of struggle, but it doesn't come from the Word of God. We want to be clear on that. When we study the Word of God, where do we what do we get from it? Good. It always is good when we're in the Word of God. And that's, that's powerful. So he who gives attention to the Word will find good. And happy is he who in the faith rest walk, we, we would say. Happy is he who trusts in the Lord. Our daily walk is a walk of trust. And when we're, when we're walking with the Lord, when we're walking by faith, not by sight, when we're led by the Spirit, all of these expressions as we deal with what is the Christian walk. It's a walk of faith. Trusting in the Lord. Trusting in the Lord is not just how to get saved, that's true, but it's more than how to get saved. It's the rest of our walk after we're saved. We're constantly walking by faith. Faith doesn't stop with the moment of salvation. And so this is what's described here. Giving attention is a verb of uh, insight and success, and we spent quite a bit of time on that. Uh, giving attention to the Word. In other words, it's not just a casual peruser. We're not just glancing at it every now and then. You know, uh, the, the life that we spend in the Word of God is not like, uh, you know, you just glance at the obituaries and make sure your name's not in it and move on. Uh, or glancing at the uh, sports page and see, you know, who won last night and moving on. It's, but you understand, the bulk of Christendom, that's how they approach the Bible. They, they, they visit every now and then, they, they glance at it every so often, oh, that's nice, but it really doesn't affect their daily life. It doesn't affect how they think, how they live, it doesn't shape who they are because they're not saturating their soul with it. They're not living in the Word of God. And so I can appreciate in the, in the New Testament the term is abide, the Greek word is meno, where you're abiding, you're remaining, you dwell. That's where you constantly are living, that's your normal mode of existence is living in the Word of God. And I like that. Of course, in the, we don't have meno in the Old Testament, but we have some Hebrew expressions, and I think this one is a, is a marvelous one that, that communicates quite a bit in terms of paying close attention, uh, uh, drawing insight from the Word of God. And that's what we should be doing. All right, moving on from then, and sub point B, the faith rest life is a life of happiness. And uh, since we live in a world where everyone is dedicated to trying to find happiness everywhere, uh, you would think that uh, the source of happiness being the Word of God the way that it is, that uh, you know, it would be more uh, popular. <laughs> and unfortunately it's not. The carnal mind is looking for carnal happiness uh, as opposed to divine happiness. And I think we understand how that works as well. But all of your uh, studies on Asher and Asherah, blessed are, blessed are, they're really happy are, happy are. And I prefer to keep it happy rather than blessed because we don't use blessed in the same way that they did back then. Uh, We'll keep our blessings separate from our happiness and I think our thinking will uh, be kept straight on that basis. All right, now when we get into C, D, and E then, we're going to start to unpack uh, verses 21 and 23 and verses 22 and 24. So the wise in heart will be called understanding, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. What does it mean to be persuasive? And um, also the reputation that we glean, the wise in heart will be called understanding. Wow, when, uh, when does that happen? <laughs> All right. And when is it generally esteemed 
uh, to be wise in heart. When do those accolades come? So point C then, the general proverb expresses a reputation acquired by the wise in their lifetime. This is a general proverb, all right? And it expresses a reputation acquired by the wise in their lifetime. So the wise in heart will be called understanding. That's a general proverb. That is not always true, isn't always fulfilled, but by and large, uh, if, uh, if a believer grows in wisdom and attains to this, this is what he gets known for by his fellow believers, by those that he's in a faith community with. Not the adversary, not the world at large. All right. Now prophetically that will happen. There will come a day in the millennial kingdom when biblical wisdom will be praised. There will come a day in the millennial kingdom when the wise in heart will have general public acclaim. Uh, not so much today, okay? <laughs> not so much today. And so when you talk about this reputation that is, um, that is acquired. And so uh, if you're known for your wisdom, think about it, in, in an assembly whereby we have elders, we have older men, we have older women, we have believers that are known for their wisdom. Why are they known for their wisdom? Because they have wisdom. Because they've been saturated with the Word of God for years. That they, that they uh, are instruments in God's hand whereby they can come alongside younger brothers and sisters and they have a persuasiveness to their speech not because they're eloquent, not because they are trained debaters or that they, they have um, manipulative verbal skills. Okay? This is where we're going to describe the difference between satanic manipulations and real divine persuasiveness. You know, what is it that you find persuasive? Well, it comes to this wisdom and it comes to the agents of this wisdom through older brothers, older sisters, those that love the Word of God, those that live the Word of God. You put a lot of weight into what they say because of, of who they are and where they are in their, in their Christian walk and where you want to be in your Christian walk. So that uh, I think that's a, a marvelous issue here as well. A reputation acquired by the wise in their lifetime. Also, beyond. In a prophetic aspect, it's going to be fulfilled in the millennium and beyond, the fullness of time, whereby those with wisdom are going to be praised, and uh, they will receive those accolades uh, in, uh, in, uh, from the general population around them. And we'll see what that's about as well. All right? And so who has that reputation and why? What are they known for? What are they called? Okay? And it comes down to this. The really the um, the privilege we have biblically is to identify with God's wisdom and God's design and to um, to be in agreement, to have a homologeo confession whereby we say the same thing that God says on any particular topic. And so, um, you know, um, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised, right? And, and so what is she called? That woman of excellence, what is she called? The, you know, the heart of her husband trusts in her and he, he will call and the children will rise up and they will call her what? They will call her blessed, okay? Is that blessed or happy? Anyway, don't get me off track. The, uh, but what do we call? And we want to make sure if we call somebody blessed, if we call someone happy, if we call someone 
wise or we call someone understanding, that we are in agreement with what God would call that person. That we're not thinking the way the world thinks, see? Because all of these things in terms of what we call becomes the uh, the venue in which we are either in agreement with God or in agreement with the world or we're expressing our own human viewpoint instead of divine viewpoint. And that then becomes the snare. Because the world is going to praise things that God doesn't praise. And, and it, there's actually in Isaiah 5 and other passages there is a tremendous rebuke. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. You know, because you can have it absolutely backwards. And you can call something good and God says, oh no, that's evil. And so this then becomes the, uh, the challenge. And uh, so if we're not calling things the way God would call them, we're living in satanic defiance. And that comes up. It's really, I think, a larger issue than specifically what's happening here. So the wise in heart will be called understanding. And there's a reputation, there's a praise, there's an appreciation that um, how, how often does it happen here in this life? You know, what are the things our society and our culture will celebrate? What are the things, you know, and I notice um, that, you know, baseball has a Hall of Fame in, in Cooperstown, New York, and football's got a Hall of Fame in, in, in Canton, Ohio, and basketball's got a Hall of Fame in uh, wherever that, Springfield, Missouri, wherever that is. Um, anyway, you've got Halls of Fame. Where is the, uh, where's the um, Wisdom in Doctrine Hall of Fame? <laughs> you know, where is the museum that you can go and see great doctrinal believers of church history? And, uh, well, it's just not there, okay? And at the judgment seat of Christ, uh, things will be rewarded and, and awarded, and, and those things will happen. But can you imagine a day when culture will honor the wise in heart? See, now it only happens amongst us. Now it only happens among like-minded believers whereby we can appreciate one another and whereby we will identify the wise in heart. And we will honor them and we will esteem them and we will make use, we will, we will go to them for the encouragement and the wisdom and the counsel that we need. See, because we're going uh, to appreciate God's provision through them for our, for our Christian walk. Um, some of this we talked about in uh, back in chapter 12, you might remember. Chapter 12 and verse 8. A man will be praised according to his insight. That's the sickle insight we were looking at last week. A man will be praised according to his insight, but one of perverse mind will be despised. And I'm like, Wow, great verse. I like that. When's that going to happen? <laughs> I want to mark my calendar for when this is going to be a normal feature of, of uh, humanity because uh, it doesn't seem to be the normal existence today in this fallen world. Uh, but a man will be praised according to his insight. One of perverse mind will be despised. And so we can look forward to, well done, good and faithful servant, but that's going to be the judgment seat of Christ. We can look forward to uh, God's way of thinking being expressed culturally in the kingdom, in the millennial kingdom, uh, not so much in this uh, present evil age. Seems to be today in our culture, the depraved mind is the one that gets praised. It seems to me the more perverted you are, the more vile your musical lyrics can be, uh, the, the, the Grammys start lining up. You start getting Grammy awards for vulgarity in your, in your music. 
you know, you start getting, uh, you know, the Oscars are going to all these social justice things and you get, you know, it just seems that the world's wisdom, the world rewards itself. And uh, we're not really in a day where a man is praised according to his insight. That's going to be eschatological. So uh, we want to understand this as a general proverb. We also want to recognize this in its prophetic aspect to be fulfilled in the millennium. Here's some things to look forward to in the millennium. All right. And uh, I'm going to read these out of order, I guess. I'm going to start with Zechariah and then I'm going to go to Joel. And uh, got a reason for that. Might not be a good reason, but I'm going to go with it. Zechariah chapter 8. How often do we turn to Zechariah? Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So it's your second to last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 8 and the last verse of the chapter. I can always find it on the page because I'm always looking to the end of the chapter there. All right. Zechariah 8.23, thus says the Lord of hosts. And, And understand in those days, what days are we talking about? Well, we're talking about Israel surviving the tribulation, the Jewish people being brought into their kingdom and um, and these things. So without reading the totality of chapter 8 there is uh, good things that Zion can look forward to. Alright, I won't read the entire chapter but just spot um, in chapter 8 and verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly zealous or jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath I am jealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion. I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. The mountains of the, the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with a staff in his hand because of age. And the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in its streets. All right, so there's good things coming up. And uh, the elders will be uh, appreciated and admired and children will be safe and all kinds of good things are happening. Anyway, millennium, not today. So in verse uh, 20, thus says the Lord of hosts, it will yet be that peoples will come, even the inhabitants of many cities. Peoples, these are going to be Gentiles will come, even inhabitants of many cities. Inhabitants of one will go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord. So Austin will team up with Houston and Dallas and they'll say, let's send a delegation to Jerusalem to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days... Ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of one Jew. Okay? This is the stewardship that Israel is going to have. The Jewish people will bless the Gentile people. That's the promise in in the Abrahamic covenant. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, let us go with you. We have heard that God is with you. You can teach us. You've got a reputation. This is the reputation that you have a heart of wisdom. And keep in mind, what's part of the the new covenant with the Jewish people? 
He's going to put His law within their heart. Each one of them. Go ahead and add in addition to Joel 2.28 and Zechariah 8.23. Add to this Jeremiah 31.31. That uh, they're going to be under the circumstances of the new covenant. And so the blessings to the Gentiles. Teach us. You have this reputation. The Jewish people will be the source of wisdom. And uh, what a day. Let me grab Jeremiah and then we'll get to Joel. Jeremiah 31.31 Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not the church, Israel. House of Israel, house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Was that the church? No, that was the Jews. They were the ones brought out of Egypt. We're talking about Israel and the millennial kingdom, not the church. The church fathers were not brought out of Egypt. The church was never under Mosaic covenant, but Israel was. And so the new covenant replaces the law of Moses. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband of them, declares the Lord. That's not the church. We didn't break the Mosaic law covenant. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. On their heart I will write it. Recognize, this is a promise to the Jewish people. Moses gave them tablets of stone that were written by the hand of God. Tablets of stone, an external command, and they they blew it. But in the millennial kingdom, God will write on their heart. Huge difference, see. Paul echoes some of this language when he talks about his uh, love for the Corinthian believers. He talks about them being written on his heart or him being written on their heart. And so he will talk about heart writing, but it's, a, it's not this. All right? Paul's not telling the Corinthians that we're under the new covenant now because God's written his law in our heart. That's just a fallacy and it's wrong. We're not under the new covenant. All right. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. On their heart I will write it. I will be their God. They will be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. This is why the Jewish people are going to have such a powerful ministry to the Gentiles. We just saw ten Gentiles are going to grab the hem of a Jew and say, Teach us. Because even the least of them is going to have a knowledge of the Lord that's going to blow away anything the Gentiles can even imagine. They're going to be the prophets, they're going to be the teachers, they're going to be the the ministers to the Gentiles for those thousand years. All right, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. And uh, I tell you, it's, it's such a fallacy, and yet people look at that and they go, oh, well, my sins are forgiven, I'm, a, I'm saved. <laughs> you know, and they they want to inject the church in here so badly. They just grab anything, like I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. And they go, aha, that's me, that's us, that's the church. No, 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 no. And we'll have more to say on that in the Hebrews class on Sunday because the uh, bringing the Jewish people under the bonds of the covenant and forgiving their national sins, forgiving their rebellion against the Lord under Mosaic law, and then forgiving their national sins and establishing them as the theocracy in the millennial kingdom, 
It's an entirely different aspect than, of course, believing in Jesus, receiving eternal life, and having your sins forgiven. Don't confuse forgiveness of your personal sins as a believer with forgiveness of Israel's national sins and their establishment as the covenant theocracy for the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Entirely different animal. All right, Joel 2.28. Joel 2. Another text that gets abused. Daniel, Hosea, Joel. If you get to Amos and Obadiah, you've gone too far. Joel 2.28. Now the reason this gets abused is because, not because it's in Joel 2.28, but because Peter uses it in his sermon of Acts chapter 2. And, and unfortunately, because Peter quotes it in Acts 2, a lot of people today will take it and say, ooh, look at that, that's us. Okay? It's not us. It's not the church. There will be a future outpouring of God the Holy Spirit on the Jewish people, on actually all humanity for the millennial kingdom. All right? And so when on Pentecost, when the church received the Holy Spirit, Peter said, look, this is like that. This is that which Joel spoke. This is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You shouldn't be surprised. We were, uh, Israel's promised an outpouring also. All right, so Joel 2.28. It will come about after this. And if you want to know what the after this is, read uh, the first 27 verses of, uh, of Joel 2. You're going to see tribulation, you're going to see war, you're going to see locusts, you're going to see Antichrist, you're going to see sun, moon, and stars falling, you're going to see all kinds of things. It's the tribulation followed by the millennium. It will come about after this. I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. So on the day of Pentecost in 33 AD, did that happen? Did all of humanity receive God the Holy Spirit? No. Only the believers in the upper room received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And then gradually, through the, you read through the book of Acts, they, they took the gospel across the world and they would encounter Old Testament believers and they would encounter Old Testament believers that needed to be brought into the New Testament. The apostles would lay hands on them. They would receive the Holy Spirit. And they would receive it in Acts chapter, I mean all the chapters, right? All throughout the rest of the book of Acts they're encountering Old Testament believers that need to be brought into the church, that need to receive the Holy Spirit. That was only true in the first century, it's not true today. Today when you get saved you get the Holy Spirit at the moment of your salvation. And you have that permanent indwelling forever. Okay? Because you can never lose your salvation, you can never lose the permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. All right. But what's prophesied here in Joel 2.28 is it will come about after this that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. Reason why? Because every unbeliever is, is removed. All the lost are, are sent to hell. The millennium starts with 100% saved. Every tribulational survivor is a believer. And so He pours out the Holy Spirit on every believer. All mankind. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And so recognize that while all humanity receives the Holy Spirit, it is only the Jewish people that are in the prophetic office. It is only the Jewish people then that will dream dreams and see visions and and know the Lord because they'll have the law written on their hearts. They're going to speak the utterances of God. Whereas even on the male and female servants I will pour out my Spirit in those days. Every Gentile, even the slaves, will have the Holy Spirit in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so 
We read a proverb like Proverbs 16 and we think the wise in heart will be called understanding. Yes, that, that can happen in a very limited respect in our lifetime. That can happen in a general sense among believers if we have capacity to appreciate that. Uh, but on a worldwide basis for culture at large, it's, we're going to have to wait until, there's, uh, until thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Until that happens, uh, generally, the wise in heart will not be called understanding. We'll be, we're going to be called idiots. We're going to be called stupid. We're going to be called liars. We're going to be called foolish. Because we believe that Bible and all the smarty pants know-it-alls, the men of science, uh, of course, know the truth. And we're just, we're just the liars for clinging to our Bibles and uh, believing these silly things. All right. Persuasiveness. Persuasiveness should not be selfish manipulation of others, but a gracious motivation to learn. A gracious motivation to learn. This is what persuasiveness is. Biblical persuasiveness. Persuasiveness should not be selfish manipulation of others, but a gracious motivation to learn. All right. A couple of things here, because persuasiveness comes up in verse 21. It comes up in verse 23. Persuasiveness is not a selfish manipulation of others. It can be. Satan, of course, will, uh, will employ such tactics. And uh, there's an example of that in uh, Proverbs 7 and verse 21 uses the very uh, same vocabulary. So we want to avoid this. Remember uh, so many of these early chapters were warning the young man about the strange woman, warning uh, young people against promiscuity and some of the snares related to that. And here comes this uh, strange woman, and she's uh, inviting him to spend the night with her. And uh, says, hey, let's drink our fill of love until morning. Ah, goodness. My husband is not at home, so hey, guess what? We can have all the fun we want. He's gone on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him. The full moon, he will come home. We've got plenty of time. With her many persuasions, she entices him. So here's, uh, here's a use of persuasion that's clearly carnal. It's clearly satanic and worldly. It's not what God designed true persuasion to be. All right. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. And so suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool. All right. So it's not difficult. In fact, it's pretty easy to seduce any carnal man in the, on the planet. You know, it comes right down to it. Without divine viewpoint, without the Word of God, without um, true wisdom, these uh, persuasions, I uh, don't have to twist the arm too hardly, and uh, the knucklehead will go for it. All right, but that's not what we're called to do. We're called to have biblical persuasiveness, and it's the wisdom of our soul that provides that. It's not a verbal technique. It is not the uh, the clever mechanism by which we can talk somebody into something. That's not what we're called to do. And in fact, what makes it so persuasive is how real it is and what a blessing that it is in your soul. 
What makes it so persuasive is the fact that you have this wisdom and you're living it. That makes it persuasive. And there's other aspects as well. It's a gracious motivation to learn. The idea is that we are instructive and that we are learning. The heart of the wise instructs his mouth. So, yes, you're wise. You, have, you are the wise in heart, but you keep learning. And it teaches your words what to say. It comes from your wisdom. It comes from what you're learning. And you're not showing up to a younger believer saying, hey, I got all the answers, I'm a know-it-all. You're showing up to a younger believer saying, I know where the answers can be found. Come learn with me. Right? And that's, that's persuasive. And, and so then a younger believer looks at you and goes, wow, you're still learning? I need to keep learning. Uh, I should never stop learning. And that becomes persuasive. And uh, the sweetness of speech, uh, what makes it sweet? The way you say it? What makes it sweet? The way you paint it? The way you sell it? It's not a sales job. What makes it sweet? It's intrinsically sweet because of what it is. It's the Word of God. The Word of God is pure. The Word of God is sweet. Taste and see. You don't have to mix it with any, you don't have to have a secret recipe where you spike it with something where you can mix in some of this stuff to make the darkness taste better. It's all, there's no darkness in it. It's all sweet. It's all, you know, honeycomb. It's not, see the thing is often with uh, the world's lies, it can have a sweet taste until it hits the stomach and then it's bitter. And uh, there's warnings related to that too. A gracious motivation to learn Going back to Deuteronomy, you know Moses, when he was getting ready to die, and he sings a song, he composes a song for the nation, and uh, they learn this song. In fact, it gets put into their canon. Deuteronomy 32, this is the song of Moses. (laughs) Oh, it's interesting. At the end of chapter 31, Joshua gets commissioned and then Moses says, all right, now assemble all the elders of your tribes. He says, um, assemble to me all the elders of your tribes. This is 3128 I'm reading from now. That I may speak these words in their hearing and call the heavens and the earth to witness against them. To whom much is given, much is required. And they're being given this rebuke. I know that after my death you will act corruptly and turn from the way which I have commanded you. How sad is that? (laughs) At the end of your life, you've been leading these people for 40 years, getting ready to die. Joshua's going to take them into the land, and yet, what's their spiritual walk going to be like? Evil will befall you in the latter days, for you will do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking Him to anger with the work of your hands. And then Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were complete. And so here's the song. And, and so much of this not only applies in Joshua's day for the conquest, but eschatologically as well, all the way through to the, to the tribulation, the, the world uh, captivity, and then, the, and then the regathering, the global regathering. Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. So if the Jewish people don't listen, at least the heavens and earth can bear witness. He said it, they're accountable for it. If they act like, well, I didn't hear him, uh, he's got heavens and earth bearing witness. Let my teaching drop as the rain, 
my speech distill as the dew, as the droplets on the fresh grass, as the showers on the herb. All right, this is what's spoken of here. Now the expression here, the idiom here that's at work is what we're looking at in Proverbs 16 this morning that talks about the persuasiveness. Let my teaching drop as the rain and my speech distill as the dew. This is the persuasiveness of the speech that is going to be a blessing for those that respond to it, for those that accept it, those that take it in. And it is a gracious motivation to learn. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. And so we're being, uh, the Jewish people and us through these scriptures, are being admonished to learn, to ascribe greatness to our God. Why would I do that? Why would I ascribe greatness to God? Because he's great, <laughs> right? I'm going to ascribe that to him. I'm going to call him great. See, ascribing means you're calling something. You're going to call a spade a spade. You're going to call a great God a great God. You're going to call, this comes back to what we we're talking about with calling, uh, the, the, if you're wise in heart, you're going to be called understanding. We're going to be, we're going to have, uh, we're going to have biblical accuracy in the things that we call and the things that we ascribe in the perspective that we have because we're learning. The persuasiveness of this, of God's wisdom causes us to learn where we can ascribe these things. And so we, uh, we call good good and we call evil evil. And we ascribe good to the good, and we ascribe evil to the evil. We don't call good evil and evil good, because that's, that lines us up for woe. That lines us up for the wrath of God when he pronounces woe upon those who call good evil and evil good. All right. And so, I mean, read the rest of this. It's... Uh, this is a marvelous song. It's a marvelous prophecy. And uh, it, it really it forms a nice uh, kind of a recap of what the last 40 years have been like and, uh, and what they can look forward to. And what they can look forward to because he's going he's gonna to restore them. He is going to restore them in the latter days even after they uh, rebel, even after they're scattered to the four corners of the earth. He's going to bring them back. He's going to... Uh, He's going to establish them as a nation. All right. Yeah, it's a great song. Um, Psalm 45. <clears throat> Psalm 45. It's a masquil. Remember we talked about what those were? A skillful song, a contemplative deductive song. It's a song of persuasion. It's a song of, of insight and success. And it's a love song. My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured out upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. It's a love song. It's celebrating Jesus Christ as the King of kings and Lord of lords. It's celebrating the Messiah when he comes and he sits on the throne of David and he rules over the Jewish people in the millennial kingdom. And it's a love song. 
So you are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. There's the persuasiveness. Why is he persuasive? Because he's the son of God. He's wisdom. He's the logos. He's, he's our Lord. And uh, there's persuasion, persuasiveness there. It's not selfish manipulation. It's a gracious motivation to learn. Grace is poured upon on, on your lips. And so think about the ministry of Jesus. People, even his critics were listening to him going, wow, our teachers don't teach like that. You know, think about the graciousness from his lips. And he wasn't even king yet. He was still, you know, a child at the age of 12 and they were amazed at what came off of his lips on through his earthly ministry. Think about him when he's seated on the throne. Think about the state of the union addresses that Jesus will give from the throne of David in Jerusalem. Gird, on, gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and in your majesty. In your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. It is a motivation, it is a gracious motivation to learn. Think about having the King of kings and Lord of lords seated on the throne of David in Jerusalem, not only ruling the world, but teaching the world. The things we can learn with a king like that. All right. The bride gets mentioned as well, by the way. And... um, when you get down, of course, we have the ivory palaces and we have the garments of cassia and myrrh and, and uh, then king's daughters in verse 9 are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. And the church is a mystery. David's not going to reveal the mystery here in Psalm 45. But we understand because of the New Testament and our role as the bride of Christ, this is us. We're the queen. When Jesus Christ takes his seat on the throne, He's the King of kings and we are His bride. What a joy. Uh, so that's Psalm 45. How about Isaiah 50? Isaiah 50. The chapter actually starts with a bit of a sadness here because uh, Israel has been faithless um, it says, uh, thus says the Lord, where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? Or to whom of my creditors did I sell you? Behold, you were sold for your iniquities and for your transgressions. Your mother was sent away. Why was there no man when I came, when I called? Why was there none to answer? Is my hand so short that it cannot ransom? Have I no power to deliver? Behold, I dry up the sea with my rebuke. I make the rivers a wilderness, their fish stink for lack of water, and I die, and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their coverings. So like I say, the chapter starts pretty gloomy in uh, terms of this judgment. But then look what, what it turns to in verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples. The tongue of disciples. You want to be an effective Bible teacher? Be a disciple. Have the tongue of a, don't have the tongue of a know-it-all. Have the tongue of a disciple and say, look, and then that I may know how to sustain the weary one with the word. You want to know the right thing to say at the right time? He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. 
There you go. If you're not in the Word of God, if you're not listening, if you're not listening to the Lord, how are you going to know what to say when your, uh, your brother needs that encouragement or your sister needs that encouragement? You say, well, I don't know what to say. How do I know what to say? Well, were you in the Word this morning? What was the Lord speaking to you? See. And so, you know, ultimately it's, it's a powerful thing and it's a glorious thing and, and you can trust in God's wisdom for when He does this. And you find yourself wherever, I don't care, you find yourself in a nursing home or a hospital or a, wherever. Find yourself in a, in a checkout line at a grocery store. I mean, you could do this anywhere. And when God opens that door and you realize, ooh, you know, because so, somebody said something and all of a sudden it hits you, he goes, wow, this is somebody with, with a lot of issues. You know, here's somebody that's hurting, right? Here's somebody under, under what can I say to this? Okay, well, don't worry about being clever. Don't worry about being, um, you know, trying to find some kind of persuasiveness in yourself. You have none. Okay, forget all that. Come to them with the truth. The best thing you can do is is uh, just say, "Wow, that's uh, that's incredible." You're under a lot of testing right now, and you don't want to know something. I was in a Bible passage this morning. I was in James chapter three, and, and there was a verse there, and here's what it said. Okay, and Here's the thing, okay? You maybe you would have never thought about this otherwise, and maybe you think, well, you know, or I was in Psalm 119 this morning, or wherever you were, okay? And don't just stop and say, well, does this really apply? It applies because if you have the ear of a disciple and that's what you were listening to, if that's what God was speaking to you, why do you think He was speaking that to you? And so just say, hey, you know what? I was in the Word of God this morning. I was in, I was just reading in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Whatever it is, wherever you are. If you're listening daily, then that moment, let your tongue just repeat it. Your ear heard it, right? Let your tongue speak it. And then just be amazed at the ministry that happens. Because the Word of God is powerful. The Word of God is, 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 is powerful. The weapons of our warfare are powerful for the destruction of fortresses. It's, it's clearly the divine Word spoke and this universe sprung into existence. So if, you're, if your tongue repeats what your ear heard, how powerful is that? So the Lord has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. That's why you've got to be daily in the Word of God. It's got to be fresh. You've got to be in living in the Word of God. Because if you're trying to dust off something you heard 35 years ago, uh, where's the power in that? The Lord has opened my ear. That's the Lord God. Has opened my ear. I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me, my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed." You heard it, you give it forth. It's going to bless the one that needs it. It might anger the one that doesn't want it. Well, deal with it, you know? There you go. Anyway, that's a powerful text. I like these. And this is what makes it persuasive. It makes it persuasive because you believe it. It's real. Luke 4 and verse 22 
context for this starts up in verse uh, 16 or 14 even. He uh, finishes his temptation from the devil and then he returns to Nazareth. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. News about him spread through all the surrounding district. He began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. Remember, the heart of wisdom will be called understanding. The wise will be praised. And he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, stood up to read. The book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and he opened the book and found the place where it is written. He turns to what today we call Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. That's Isaiah 61 and verse 1. And then he reads a third of verse 2. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That is only one third of Isaiah 61 too. So he read a verse and a third of a second verse. Then he closed the book or he rolled up the scroll. Gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And and understand what's going to become powerful. And it's not his technique, it's not his style, it's it's not the drama of rolling up the scroll and handing it and sitting down. Although I admit, I would be pretty startled if somebody read a verse and a third and then just stopped and sat down. Because there's more to that passage. It's a very long passage. It's a passage that talks about millennial glory. But he didn't get that far. He stopped with proclaiming the favorable year of the Lord. The eyes were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. When you employ the hermeneutic of fulfillment versus not yet fulfilled, you recognize that you have to rightly divide the word of truth and you have to delineate between first advent and second advent. And so for first advent fulfillment, all he could read was verse 1 and a third of verse 2. Because the rest of verse 2 and verse 3 and verse 4 and following is not fulfilled yet. It goes ahead to the millennial kingdom. It goes to, uh, to the blessings that will happen when they have their kingdom and glory. Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? Isn't this the kid we used to see running around out there in the... You know, they remember when he was back in the day. They remember back when. Where did these gracious words come from? And so... It's a gracious motivation to learn. And that's where the persuasiveness comes in. It's having the truth, knowing the Lord, encouraging others to learn. There's a great, uh, there's a great joy in that. John 7 and verse 46. And uh, a lot of conflict in this chapter. And uh, back and forth with the crowds, with uh, religious leaders, different people. Um, In verse 37, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me 
As the Scripture said, from His innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now we'll talk about that. That's coming up under point E and what pours forth from our gracious lips as, uh, as we become vessels, as God through us communicates His gospel call. But drinking is a metaphor for believing. Obviously, he who believes in me, this is uh, an invitation to receive eternal life. By this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so really, we have anticipation of church age realities, but ultimately, for Israel's standpoint, they're looking forward to millennial realities. Looking forward to the what we already saw, when the Jewish people in the millennium are going to be spirit-indwelled and they're going to be prophetic utterance They're going to be teaching the Gentile people. Nevertheless, we uh, we have similar blessings in the church age because Jesus is glorified and we receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words were saying, this certainly is the prophet. This has got to be what Moses was talking about when he said, a prophet is coming after me. Others were saying, no, no, this is the Christ. Others were saying, well, the Christ can't come from Galilee, will he? Has not the Scripture said that Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And so they're trying to apply the Scriptures and they're all kinds of confused. So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. And some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. And then the officers come. Remember, the Pharisees had commissioned these soldiers to go arrest him. And uh, let me tell you, if, if you have a warrant to go arrest somebody and you go to arrest them and you come back without them, that's a problem. Okay? I wouldn't have even, I mean, imagine. And uh, so the officers then come to the chief priests and the Pharisees and they said to them, why, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. That's, uh, that's grace coming off his lips. That's the persuasiveness of the man of understanding. And uh, that's the Uh, Not the selfish manipulation of others, but the gracious motivation to learn. And they realize there's something different here. There's a power in this. So the Pharisees then answered them, you have not also been led astray, have you? You've been tricked. You've been manipulated. You've been sold a bill of goods and they're taking you off into this thing. No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? Actually, they have. (laughs) Nicodemus has. Joseph of Arimathea has. Others. But this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. You talk about calling good evil and evil good. This crowd which does not know the law. They think these guys are the know-it-alls. These guys are the ones that they think should be listened to. These guys should be, they believe their persuasiveness is to, is to control people's lives, to use legalism to, to control you know, what you can do and where you can do it and how much you can do it, to have all of the legalism control about what constitutes breaking the Sabbath or keeping the Sabbath, how far you can walk on a Sabbath day's journey, uh, what you can hold, what you can lift, all the control that they had. Uh, you got to measure out your cumin and dill so that you can tithe your spice rack in the kitchen. I mean, how insane as they use, uh, as they use Mosaic law as a weapon to, to control people's lives. 
they're actually guilty of what they can, uh, are accusing Jesus of doing. That Jesus was leading them astray as some kind of a master manipulator. Uh, some kind of a salesman that could just talk people into anything. It's not what it is. That's not what it is. I'm going to have to close with this. We'll come back to this next week. My um, One of my two childhood pastors, John Eichmann used to say, um, when, when you're a teacher of the Word of God, you're not called to talk people into anything. He says, if I talk you into anything, then somebody smarter than me will come along later and talk you out of it. <laughs> you know? So if I talk you into anything, what have I really done? But if the Word of God gets convicting to your soul, if the power and the truth of doctrine lays hold, search the Scriptures, see if these things are so. Be noble-minded. Don't just take it because I talked you into it. That's terrible. But if it's truth and the spirit of truth resonates, then that's where the real persuasiveness comes in. You've got to be persuaded in your soul as to this truth. All right. We'll talk about the fountain of life provision when we speak as as if the water is flowing and we are communicating blessings. Communicated blessings include fountain of life provisions for evangelism and edification. Communicated blessings. And if you're not living in the Word, you can't be the the channel. You can't be the conduit for this living water to to flow through you. Because you're not the source. At best, you're the conduit. He's the source. So we'll deal with that. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for the living and abiding Word of God. I thank you, Father, for the power of your Word that sustains us when we are listening daily, when we have the ready ear so that we can have the ready tongue and be your servant, Father, in every circumstance. And I thank you, Father, most of what we're seeing here are um, Old Testament passages that are applicable to the Jewish people in their own stewardship, uh, both historically past and prophetically future. Uh, And yet how much more, how much more do we have application in the church age, Father, in our Melchizedek priesthood, in a heavenly power beyond anything that the Old Testament could even ask or think. So I thank you for all of this. Open our eyes to these realities, open our ears, uh, open our heart, Father, to uh, to recognize the power of these uh, of these blessings that we might live them out in our day and age. I thank you and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.